Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. First of all, I want to say a big thank you to everybody who has contributed to our Gaza fundraiser. It's been really uplifting and heartwarming to see so many people chipping in and to get to see the impact it's had on the people in tents in Rafa who are struggling under the most horrendous of situations. And just to see the, the little handwritten notes thanking our listeners for the support and what it means to people in Gaza. I can't thank you all enough. But as awkward as that is, I do need to ask you to help keep this show on the road. The only way we keep going is if you click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. We've no ads. We've no sponsors. We need you to chip in, pay it forward and keep the show on the road. The five quid you're giving us helps us carve out the space we need to continue to have conversations that you don't hear enough of in much of the mainstream and to do the activism that really matters. So come on board, join our little community, and help keep the show on the road. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves, and once again, because we're recording prior to 2pm in the afternoon, I have to fly solo. Because as you know, folks, the crypt doesn't open until after Joe Duffy starts, and he's uh, and he's being hydrated with um, 14 cups of coffee. Uh, I would say get well soon, uh, Martin, but I couldn't really bring myself to say it. I should say it. I should say it, but I won't. Um, and there's a smile on the other side. It's lovely to be greeted by a smile, by a returning, a returning um, favourite. And let's be honest, one of, one of a guest who goes all the way back to our earliest days, uh, architect, assistant professor at UCD, Orla Hegarty. Orla, it's great to see you. It's great to see your smile. How are you keeping? Hello, Tony. Great to see you again. Now, thank you for coming on again and having what I think will be a very interesting conversation now in relation to yet again, we're talking housing as we were six and a half years ago when we first uh, when we first sat down for have, to have a chat. But before I do, I want to just kind of give a little bit of political context to this because it's been interesting since uh, Sinn Féin came out and they said they want to see house prices affordable. They could see prices around 300,000 and, you know, that it posts prices in Dublin around 300,000 and there was a big reaction in parts of the media and then a couple of weeks later a poll was done and the poll came out and said actually the general public are kind of in favour of bringing down the house, house prices as well. Well not uh, well, not like, well, there was a significant majority who weren't. There's there's also a lot of people who think, yeah, um, you know, a house should be affordable. Orla, you probably watched that with great detail. In fact, I know you did because you put together a thread of, of properties that can be built and done for 300000 Can I get your sense overall of the affordability question and how it's been debated over the last few weeks? Um, yeah, it's been interesting to watch, Tony. Um, you'll have seen the uh, Society of Chartered Surveyors brought out um, their estimate uh, at the end of last year for 460,000 in the greater Dublin area. Um, you know, but but nowhere do people say, but if you go onto the property websites, there are new built houses for sale in Mullingar and Kilkenny for 275, um, which is, you know, consider 180,000 cheaper. Um, and, uh, you know, so those developers are clearly not selling at a loss in those locations and they're not that far from the greater Dublin area. They're only a stone's throw outside it. Um, so clearly the estimates really need to be challenged, I think, um, because they paint a picture of cost uh, that is to do with the business model of how developers operate, not to do with the bricks and mortar and the land and the planning and the tax. 
Yeah, and I think that's the crucial part. I saw um I saw that four sixty figure put out and you know, we know and it was a couple of years ago, but we know in Dublin they were done for 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 half that in um up the road for me in in the O'Coolon development in Ballymun. So you know, again, yes, take out the strip out the land and, and the servicing charges, but that's not enough surely to to, to bring it down by, you know, a hundred and eighty thousand or well, I suppose the first thing to say is, like, these are estimates. These are not audited costs. These are the developers, surveyors getting together and and agreeing numbers effectively. You know, and between themselves, they uh, go out and survey quite a lot of developers and developments on what are you spending on X, Y and Z. Now, these are their competitors, too. So, you know, people are going to give rounded numbers or give estimates. So they're not audited. They're not audited by somebody independent. That's the first thing to say. Um, the second thing is, you know, they normally paint a picture that that supports a position on whether they're, you know, lobbying for increased density or reduced VAT or whatever. So, you know, the breakdown within those top level numbers can move around a bit, uh, depending on that. Um, uh, and, you know, if you go back even to their previous report, I think that was around 370. You know, on the day that was published, there were new bills in Wexford for sale for 199. You know, so there's always been this pattern of, um, yes, that paints a picture and it seems credible on the surface. But actually, you know, if some developers are building for a fraction that maybe they're the people we need to talk to first um, and maybe they're the ones we need to look closely at because they're clearly making a profit or they wouldn't be doing it. So um, that that's the kind of breakdown. But I suppose the bigger political picture is that effectively new built homes will sell for whatever the market will bear. So. You know, if, as you know, if the multiple on mortgages increased tomorrow, prices would go up because more people could borrow four times their salary or five times yeah, their yeah. salary. And we've seen this before. Oh, I see. I, 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 I get in so much trouble um, all the time now with people who are, I'm going to say, suppose, you know, share side of my political left-leaning views and they say well you know i can afford this on rent and therefore i can afford this on mortgage give me a hundred percent mortgage and i scream no um as someone who launched 100 percent mortgages and saw the damage they did because mm. the credit chase the credit just simply chased the 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 the, the market and then the, the pr- prices kept continuing to go up and literally overnight i remember i remember watching it in front uh, in front of my like valuation reports where there was 60 grand off the price of a unit from 380 to 320 and that person was automatically in that type of negative equity um and i say this as someone who underwrote those loans for 380 you know so i say it from experience no this is not the more credit is not the is not the solution in my opinion there has okay there can be and by the way i just want to also be very clear on this there are exceptions that they that they continue to do them there the central bank of ireland allows about exception rate of about 10 percent. it's currently run about 14 15 percent. so you know they, they they always will look at circumstances i've seen cases where people have you know um needed to move to a certain location with negative equity but because there was a family uh, member ill that that it would you know it would be better for the betterment and the bank have it as an exception they're allowed to do these they're allowed to do, uh, there's also other professions where they still they've always looked at and Orla you'd be aware of this certain professions would be given a higher rate of loan to value because of the security of employment mm. and and these things all of that all adds up but it doesn't mean that we rush off and say um as we did previously, you know, uh, there was two things that we would do. We 
before we had 100% mortgages, we would say to you, come in, and the bank would say, come in, get your uh, get your approval in principle for your 90%. If you don't have the 10%, then run off to the, to the credit union and borrow your 10%, and we'll have done, and it won't show up on the on the credit score because we'll have done it already now. And people were, and this was this was par for the course. So mm. the the idea that we want to go back down this road is just insanity. Um. So yeah, I I'm worried about the, the yeah. Go on. Very much so, you know. And I think, I mean, maybe we also need to recognise that you know we have a generation of policymakers who were probably you know traumatised by the crash and the whole banking situation and the IMF and, you know, how close the country came to the edge. And, you know, you can understand that people who have lived that experience are uh, always, always guarding against anything happening to the banks again. And, you know, and lifting people out of negative equity uh, has been a very strong policy position for the last 10 or 15 years. So um, the problem is that that has got tangled, I think, with housing policy, you know. So, yes, uh, if if property prices dropped 20 or 30 percent tomorrow because the market dropped, you would have another banking problem and a lot of people would be in negative equity. But that doesn't mean you have to overcharge everybody who needs a new home uh, and penalise the next generation. There are, you know, there's a mechanism there that can be found to have a different tenure model or a different uh, you know, so it's not the same market effective. And I, again, to push back, we've all, we already have a a um, property crash. It's called the commercial property section. It's happening. It's happening already on loan books. It's happening globally. We just don't want to. Uh, it's like Schrodinger's um, bank collapse. We don't. We pretend we don't look at it. It's not happening. But but on the on the on the residential side of things. The problem, as you quite as you as you've outlined this for a number of years, and one of the only few people who've been doing it, saying the policy has been to get people out out of ne- negative equity. It's just not been stated. It's not been something that has been really, you know, to the forefront. Yeah, well, I mean that's laudable on you know one hand that solves a lot of uh, you know people's financial and pension and social issues, uh, but the problem is doing it at the expense of a whole generation. And the and the side effect of that policy being so much wealth generation going offshore and elsewhere, which leaves that next generation not only overpaying for housing and very vulnerable, but with no pension provision. And the third part to that is actually then provide then having to spend so much of their income on on housing provision themselves, be it high rents or whatever the situation is, that they actually have less consumption, uh, you know, less space spending capability in the real economy, which is why we have this huge baked in inequality. In And having fewer children, which yep. means that they're, you know, the best way for us to solve the pension crisis would be affordable housing and childcare and then there's more children and then the pension crisis solves itself. I, I, I had a, I, had, I, I mentioned Emmett Kirwan before we came on the pod and his line was a life delayed people living and he's very right about that that people yeah. were putting off these these milestones that you know other that, that other generations kind of moved along through uh, Martin refers to them as the failure to launch uh, generation which is yeah. which is also it, it and it's not to cast aspersions on people it is just a, these are the facts when when housing is so out of reach of, of what was what was nominally the, the normal median wage this is the this is the problem so let's return to that issue of affordability if you don't mind mm-hmm. 
how much do you think we can build houses for or or a, or a two bed apartment for what's your kind of what's when you look at the figures of 460 and you now see as you said things coming to market at 285 how much do you think where where where's the where's the median where's the the median well i for, i suppose to separate out houses and apartments because they're two different things very much um uh houses can be built incrementally you know i mean i've always been saying we need to break up the big sites in public ownership, master plan them like other countries do, put in the drainage and streetlights and footpaths and let people tackle smaller sites, let lots of builders tackle smaller sites in parallel, get some innovation, you know, get decent quality environment with amenity space and facilities uh, and uh, let there be competition in the market and let people build incrementally. You know, if you lend somebody a million, uh, you can get four houses built, you know, and you can then sell them and you can roll over that million indefinitely. Um, so the idea, and you see it in the LDA figures as well, that it's capital investment and you need every penny as if you're building a road or a hospital. You know, that's not the way housing works. As soon as you build those first four houses, you have an asset that's performing. You've got either sold them on or you've got rental income and you just keep rolling over that money. So seed funding can go very far if it's done the right way. Um, um, and I think in housing, that would also allow self-builders who are people who get up and do it for themselves to access land in sustainable locations. You know, our, our, a lot of our self-builders are not in sustainable locations, uh, which, uh, you know, so the problem isn't self-builders. The problem is sometimes they're building in the wrong places. Um, again, it would let self-builders, uh, you know, build themselves, but on affordable land in a better location where there's density and they can walk and they have services. Uh, and let self builders and small builders and small developers all, you know, participate in that in this, that market. We're back. This is back to what you you so refer to before. It was stolen by the by the um, build everything everywhere gang. The the Dunkirk the Dunkirk model of the little yeah. the, the little developers going in on larger sites and and actually increasing competition to build out, but in a planned way. Yeah. yeah. And it's done in other countries. It's not rocket science, you know. And when you have more competitors, you get more innovation, you get better prices, you get a competition on quality, but you also get a better jobs market because, you know, if somebody's not a good employer, people will go elsewhere. And, uh, you know, you, you don't have a captured job market where, you know, it's sort of take it or leave it as a, uh, so, so that does all the benefits of that. So certainly in housing, that's a model that could be rolled out in many towns. And cities, new suburbs, uh, all of that to sustainable densities with proper amenities and uh, supported by local authorities. But on apartments, um... on the apartments, yeah. Well, this this one is is a tricky one because, unfortunately, the model of apartments that has been pursued, you know, probably since they started deregulating in twenty sixteen, has been a you know an almost American model of hyper density, high rise, uh, high cost. Um, uh, and, you know, all those initial figures you'll see, you know, were really land speculation figures. You know, if, if you increase the height, we can get double the housing on this. If you don't make us have, you know, uh, two aspects for cross ventilation and decent amenity in an apartment, you know, if we can have a long corridor like a hotel with stacked up apartments, if you, uh, deregulate the minimum size one bed and we can build small studios. If you deregulate co-living, if you take out the requirement for balconies and amenity spaces and we can manipulate the number to have no crash and all the things that went on. Um, we're all really about a very simplistic numbers game of land value increase. Mm. 
So, you know, a bit of deregulation, you got a windfall immediately on your land value because you could demonstrate you could get twice as many. And, and I just want to make it clear to listeners, this is not a speculation. We only have to point at the, which was social and affordable side of O'Devony Gardens and how, uh, you know, a plan went in and I'm going to just use round figures. A plan went in for a 50, a 50 apartment unit and we, and Orla and Mel warned at the time, that's not what's going to actually, you know, this is the starting point. And the next time it was 75 and then it was 80. You know, and it was it was all about land value capture and the idea then that actually they used that they, before they'd even laid a brick on a, on a, an affordable home. They'd already made their money. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, you know, and just to stick with O'Devney for a minute, it's going to have about four times the density it had before. It's very, very dense inner, inner city density, even though it's not an inner city site. But it will have half the number of bed spaces for children in social housing that the original scheme had. Sorry, say that again, if you don't mind. So it's it's it'll have four times the density in terms of the number of people living on every hectare. Yeah, but but the entire scheme will have half the number of bed spaces for children in social housing than the previous scheme. Wow, what? Uh, like, I mean, and this was our land. This was our given to um, Bartra, I believe, was the was the successful uh, developer. Yeah, well, on. it's finally gone on site now, four years after the contract was awarded. But I mean, all the competitive tension was lost four years ago. So, you know. But again, I, I hate to go back and re. I am going to rake over old calls. When it went to to the council, they even rejected it at a vote, and then came up against a, a letter from Old Murphy saying, "Do it or else." Basically, you know. So, so even yeah, there's a long history on that site. But I mean, to go back to the apartment thing again, that drive for hyper density, reduced amenity, reduced standards, even reduced fire safety standards, which is a whole other mm-hmm. issue. Um, what that did was it 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 made it it made design of a, those apartment blocks such that you had to build the whole lot together. It made them really expensive, so you couldn't break them down into phases. You couldn't occupy ten apartments as you went, and then ten more, and have them as a performing asset. You basically had to build several hundred, and carry the finance cost and risk on all of that before you could finish the development, because there were fewer lifts, and because of the plan and the layout of the buildings, you couldn't phase them. So when they finally all got permission and construction costs started to rise for other reasons, you know, other variety of reasons. Um, you know, people realised these were high risk and hard to finance. And and then you suddenly find you've got this hyper dense scheme that costs a lot to build because because of risk and finance and just the design of the building. So, so if we'd stuck with our previous apartment standards with probably in a lot of cases, 12 or 16 apartments to a lift and stairs. They could be phased. It was like building houses down a Georgian street. You know, you had a front door and you had a stack of apartments with their own lift and stairs and they could be built and occupied and then the finance would roll over like it would in housing. Mm. So we had a very uh, sustainable model of apartment standards that was thrown out for a more American well, model. Well, uh, financial... It is now proved to be unviable. Yeah, not as only is it proved to be unviable because the standards were lowered. We have now this double standard, well... Lesser standard, you know, of buy to, uh, of build to, build to rent and build to sale. And they don't, and neither of the two shall match. And if we do, as we, as we, as we indicate, you know, if we see a, a flight of, of, uh, of fin- financial capital, we're in a lot of pressure then because these units are, we've already said they're not fit for sale. And yet the state will be looking, you know, through, through schemes such as tenant in situ to take on some of these things that, that, that. Yeah. We- and, 
you know, splitting out two different standards for bill to sell and bill to, bill to rent was a disaster, yeah. um, you know, because it immediately made people renting second class citizens. And the justification at the time was, well, this is just, you know, the, the you know, highly uh, mobile, well-paid international workers who are only here for a short while and it's fine. And and I said at the time, these will end up in social housing. It, the argument will be made that they're rented and therefore they can be the lower than the standards. And actually that was denied at the time. You know, people said, no, 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 social housing is, is long-term housing. It won't happen. But it has happened. And the lower standards, you know, with, uh, as I said, like no balcony, very dense um, and, and without much thought for or, Orla, the actual reality of living in these buildings. Orla, there's one not too far from me there where there's a... a playground for the, for some of the kids that live in like, the reason to say some of the kids is because there's a keypad on for access to it so i mean like we are literally trying to you know make our way through as you said second class citizens in 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 in, in the same developments in, in terms of amenities and in terms of what's available to people it's well i'm glad i'm glad you've mentioned children because you know housing for all doesn't yeah <laughs> and um uh, the in fact the only mention of children in the entire housing plan is children in homelessness uh, having more support and, um, uh, you know, and our how housing policy now seems to be on the basis that every bed space has to be an earner, you know. So the two bed city units are actually for four earners. Uh, they're not uh, affordable for families where the children are not uh you know, climbing chimneys and bringing home a wage. We might go back there now because I see in parts of America they've gone back to allowing kids work in abattoirs again and places like this. So maybe we should revisit that, you know. But just can I ask a, a very simple question that maybe doesn't have a simple answer? Do you think we should have a land value tax? Um, I don't think I'm an expert in that area to answer it properly, to be honest. Um, what I would say, though, is... You know, clearly land is a huge part of this and and the whole um, uh, value capture is in the land market. And um, the dynamics of that need really careful intervention um, uh, to have the desired outcomes. And what in, in broad principle, what I have a problem with is overinflating things with windfall profits and then trying to tax it back yeah. because you don't get it back. You know, and the the example of rezoning the industrial estates in Dublin, you know, people, there, there was a, a calculation done that should get something like 100 million a year back, you know, to the city council in, in the capture of the land, increased land value. But like that 100 million a year back was on the back of 2 million being added to the, 2 billion being added to the land, all of which would have to be paid back yeah. in mortgages and rent. So, you know, the the overvalue and tax back model is not very efficient. It doesn't achieve the outcome you want. Because the money has, to, yeah, absolutely. Because it becomes a profit for someone else, and that's the and that's the issue. When like, I mean, I remember it was um, our friend Lorcan Sir was talking about the uh, the Dublin industrial estate in Glasnevin. You know, yeah. and the, 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 it is prime land. I often, I often, it's, it's not too far from where I run up in uh, Talca, Talca Valley uh, Park, and you know, you see it and you understand that. It's prime location. It's on a it's on a Lewis line. It's on a train line. It's near you know. It's near. It's well serviced. And yes, it has that. But again, we shouldn't be looking at that then as an opportunity to increase the. Yeah, but if you look at Sandyford Industrial Estate, you know, because that has been redeveloped. I, for I'd, ra- I'd rather not. I I think it just, yeah, it's just it's an eyesore. You can, what, <laughs> you can see what happens. Like when you just rezone land, you have a road layout that was designed for lorries in the nineteen sixties. Yeah. Okay, you have uh, poor pedestrian access and poor permeability through the blocks. 
everybody's going to maximise their own site. So you don't get amenity space, you don't get sites for schools or any community stuff unless it's returning rent on a shop or a coffee shop. Um, and you get really patchy development. Like there are people living in Sandyford now in apartments for 15 years or more who are still looking at, uh, you know, an industrial unit next door, a half finished block that crashed in, in the, yeah. uh, you know, 15 years ago. And you get really patchy development and you don't get balanced development and you don't get an adequate amenity. Um, so you really need to buy out the whole industrial estate at existing value with an uplift, replan it break it up into, you know, proper sized blocks and proper road layouts for residential areas, make space for the schools and the creches and the playgrounds and everything else and space for people to walk the dog and have, you know, reasonable amenity and then build it out from there uh, without capturing hundreds of millions in uh, windfall profit for somebody that somebody else has to pay back then for the next 20 or 30 years. Um, okay, and, and I think that's I think you're really spot on on that. But if we were to start fresh with something like that, the delivery model, uh, we saw our, our, our um, the, how do I put this, the sage of everything, Connor Skeen talking about, well, look, you know, we just need to get the, more of the private market delivery model, get, get it going and maybe allow them to um, reduce sizes because, you know, that's what's costing us. Now, when, when we look at it, you know, there's the argument then from, say, Ono Brin and Sinn Féin would be, well, we have enough state-owned land and we should be building it through state delivery models. Give me kind of uh, the pros and cons of, 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 of either of those, if you would, if you don't mind. Um, well, first off on reducing standards, you know, I'm very, very opposed to that. Um, it's it's a very unsophisticated response. You know, it's it's a bit like bringing an accountant in to run a restaurant, you know, and, you know, they're, they'll do the easy things. They'll reduce the portions on every plate and cancel the salt and cancel the cleaner and, you know, because they're easy. And then the restaurant will fail anyway, you know. Yeah. Because standards have dropped. Um, so, you know, that's not a very sophisticated model. If you want an efficient restaurant, you need to start talking to the chef and the suppliers. Um, uh, so that's the first one. Um, uh, just in relation to uh, what kind of procurement model and how you would do it, um, I think we need to expand the market. We've too few players and they're locked out uh, in Dublin. Um, you can see when you go around the country, there's better value from uh, from builders in terms of prices local authorities are getting. Um, and you can see even in the self-builders, you know, self-builders are building houses that are twice the size of a Dublin or Cork three-bed semi. And, you know, self-builders are not people who are living in rural Ireland earning a million a year. So clearly uh, they're getting, uh, they're able to build double the size of a Dublin house um, at the same money or less, mm. because that's the kind of earnings people have. Um, so it's not the construction costs or the builders at, at that level. And it's certainly, it's, it's certainly not great infrastructure. You know, they always say to you, oh, you know, um, the, the, the cost of getting the stuff there. I mean, like you're talking about, like, I believe uh, if, if, if the Indo is to be believed, Holly Cairns has built a, a 19, uh, a, a 2000 foot square mansion with only three bedrooms. But, you know, nonetheless. It, well, I mean, you know, a lot more, most self-builders in Ireland, rural Ireland are building that size house. I, you know, I, I'm, only, I'm only joking. I, yeah. just, I just like to make fun of people from Cork, as you know. Um, but um, So, you know, the idea of ex- expanding the market, like we still have far fewer builders than we had in in the Celtic Tiger years. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, you know, uh, basically most, uh, you know, huge, huge percentage of builders lost their job. A lot of them went back to their home countries. A lot of Irish people emigrated and didn't, weren't attracted back. Uh, but also all the apprentice programs were shut down for, you know, the best part of 10 years. So people weren't, 
uh, weren't trained up and, and we didn't train enough people to, to work as builders. And then we have the sort of gig economy where Mm-hmm. Work is precarious in that sector, and you know it's 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 not easy work, and there's more money in other sectors. And if you have a very you know more precarious employment um, and uh, uncertainty, and you're still remembering the crash, you know maybe it's not attractive, made attractive enough. Um, and f- you know if people who are working as small builders and subcontractors are only able to work for larger entities and not start on their own. There are plenty of people coming up who, if they had access to land and finance and some seed funding, could uh, could be the new generation of, of our developers. But that's not been encouraged either. Yeah, and I think that's a crucial point. I remember speaking to, um, you, going back to what you said about rolling finance, to, to Hugh, Hugh Brennan from O'Coolon saying, give me four million and uh, I'll, I'll build out and build out and build out and build out. And at the end of it, I can still give you back your four million with a small return. You know, uh, well, Scotland has a fund for small builders that's, I think, maximum um, a million pounds mm. uh, to get seed funding for housing. Um, and our equivalent here, start, you know, is at 75 million, you know, so, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, one one entity can can borrow 75 million rather than having 75 smaller entities get seed funding and have some competition. Uh, you know, and the other side of land hoarding, you know, is when developers say, well, we need to keep a rolling program of land for the future. Um, their competition is locked out of that land while it's growing grass as well. Yep. So, you know, there's zoned land that isn't being brought on because they're managing output to maintain prices. Just a very last question then to go bring this back full circle. The idea then of seeing house prices come down has been anathema, anathema to the Irish psyche. And there is a lot of scar tissue there from the crash. Um, but I, I wonder now... Are we ready to be have a mature conversation about the, the need to actually say, well, it will actually, I'd rather, I don't mind if my house is worth 15%, 20% less than it is today if I knew that my children or grandchildren will actually have something to do. Are, do, you, mm-hmm. do. Do you think that that's where we need to move the conversation to as opposed to? Well, the market's going to do what the market's going to do. And like supply of new housing is actually a very small imp- influence on price. Oh, don't say that. They'll yeah. all go, I can hear them screaming at the, at the that's not true. Just get, build it everywhere. It'll all come down. We know it works. Well, a 1% increase in housing stock, so that's like 1%, say, on the 2 million houses in the country would bring prices down by something like 1.5% if you didn't take any other factors like interest rates or whatever local markets into it. So I think we need a parallel market. And this is something NESC sort of articulated, you know, before all of this as well. You know, we need we need a parallel market that's not directly competing with the people who have a 400 grand mortgage in the next field. Um, that has that has a different tenure model, and it's not a tenure model where the government get them to have a second mortgage, effectively on, you know, the first home scheme, uh, so that they are in the same market. Uh, so you know, we need some other model of the ownership of the land or some other innovation that allows houses to be produced at the three hundred thousand for the people who need them. Uh, and at scale, because it's not scalable when you're subventing houses by one hundred and fifty thousand each. It's just not scalable. So, uh, look, I'm just gonna I'm gonna wrap up on this. What we're actually saying is too many um, supply side incentives and not enough uh, not enough to actually make to bring down prices as opposed to. So, you know, again, people ended up with second mortgages. People ended up with availing of these these ways. Of, you know, it's like 
winning a small small win on a scratch card kind of thing but you ultimately you know the developer gets paid the, the private market gets paid and the money has to be paid eventually whether it be through the through the the exchequer or through the the individual having to carry the can in some other way and we need to move away from that it, it, i i I absolutely agree with you that that there there is a way to do it. There, we know there are delivery models available, but your the key point is, you know, none of this three hundred of those units there, forty of them there, twelve of them there. We need it at scale, something that will actually compete with the private deli- delivery model. So, Orla Hegarty, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you. As I said, it's lovely to see your smiling face this morning, and um, and we will come back to this, I'm sure, uh, because I do think. Even though housing has seemed to have fallen down the the uh, headlines a little bit because of the the, the need to uh, weaponize immigration and migration at the moment, I do think even underlying that is the housing crisis. Absolutely, the housing crisis that is central to all of this, and we have to tar- start calling for this. Thanks for your time, and we will talk to you folks all very very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.